Our text this morning is Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This is what David writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Please pray with me. Repenting, confessing, and trusting you, Father, let that be the mark of your people in this church. Let us be glad and let us rejoice and let us shout for joy for your great salvation, Father. We pray now that you will bless your people through your word. Give us ears of faith and humble hearts to obey where we ought to obey. Father, you have been good to us already this morning through songs and prayers. We pray that you will continue to be faithful and good to your people as I proclaim your word to them. Keep me from error, Father, and help your people listen to your word with ears of faith. In the name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen. Let me apologize from the beginning if, uh, if I do any sniffling this morning. <laughs> what is happiness? Or what does it mean to be happy? The way you answer this question, consciously or unconsciously, will set the direction of your entire life. The French mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal writes, 
all men seek happiness. This is without exception that will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. To seek after happiness is in our nature. We are creatures, creatures created by God with the instinct to pursue that which is infinitely good and infinitely beautiful and infinitely right and infinitely satisfying. We were made to pursue these things. We were made to know what the object of true happiness is and to actually enjoy it to the fullest. The Bible pictures the life of true happiness as the Godward life, the life that is centered on God and the life that aims for God as its ultimate end. But the Bible is also clear that when sin entered the world through Adam's rebellion, this God-centeredness and God-orientation of our hearts was dislocated, it was broken, so that true happiness in God was lost. I want to suggest to you this morning that Psalm 32 is an invitation back to true happiness. Psalm 32 is a wisdom psalm that contemplates what the good life is and how to live it. As we read, the text begins with the words, a masculine of David, that's actually part of the inspired word. And that is what a masculine is, a contemplation of life intended to instruct us on the way we should live in the world so that it would lead to true happiness or true human flourishing. David will instruct us in verse 8 and will teach us the way that we should go. And he will counsel us in the pathway of true happiness. Verses 1 and 2 introduce the idea of true happiness or of experiencing blessedness. In verse 1, David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The word blessed is a term that is not limited to a vertical, vertical spiritual transaction between God and man. It is that, but it's not limited to that. Rather, it is a comprehensive term that embraces all of life. It speaks of a way of being in the world that leads to flourishing. Some translations actually translate verses 1 and 2 like this. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So the blessed person is the person who is experiencing the good life, the life of blessedness, or the life of true and lasting happiness and flourishing in this world. The same idea is repeated in the last verse of the psalm. Verse 11 concludes with an invitation to be glad in the Lord and to rejoice and shout for joy. So that from beginning to end, Psalm 32 is an invitation to a way of living in the world that leads 
to true and lasting happiness. Now let me warn us that the Bible does not give us pragmatic steps on how to lead a more fulfilling and happy life. This approach to the Bible is foolish at best and deadly at worst. You can literally shipwreck your faith trying to follow steps to a better life. The Bible has no category for such a thing. Rather, the Bible is embedded in the reality of our complex human experience in a fallen world. I'm talking about true happiness this morning, fully aware that we have some of our members very sick and even dying. David is not offering three steps to a happier life that ignores the reality of sin and pain and sorrow in this life. He writes about a way of being in the world that leads to flourishing not in spite of, but in and through the complex human experience in a fallen world. David was a man acquainted with sorrow. David says that the experience of blessedness is rooted in forgiveness. That's actually the main idea of Psalm 32, the idea of forgiveness. Look with me at verse 1 again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven here carries the idea of something being lifted up and carried away. It is actually the same word that describes the goat carrying the sin of the people outside the camp on the Day of Atonement. The picture is that of a sinner who, after being weighed down by the burden of his sin, is now finally free from it. David continues in verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Forgiveness also includes the acquittal of guilt. The Lord counts no iniquity against the one who forgives. The burden of sin is lifted up and the sinner is counted free. True happiness, David says, is found in knowing and experiencing this freedom in forgiveness. That is one of the reasons why we sing, At the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. I actually got to see Miss Louise on Saturday, and she was happy, very happy. If true happiness is rooted in knowing and experiencing the forgiveness of our sin by God, the question then is, how can we obtain such forgiveness? How do we obtain this forgiveness that roots our happiness in this world? To answer our question, we will follow David on the pathway of blessed forgiveness, where he instructs us to turn away from sin, to trust God, and to walk in wholehearted devotion to Him. What I love about this psalm is that it is, this is not David writing from 
the theologian's desk. This is David writing out of his own experience, inspired under the, under the Holy Spirit to teach the church and to instruct the church in the pathway of blessed forgiveness. So I have three points. Turning away from sin, trust in God, and walking in wholehearted devotion to Him. First, then in verses 3 through 5, David invites us to experience blessedness by turning away from sin. True, lasting happiness is found in repentance. You probably know this quote, because we probably have quoted a hundred times from this pulpit, but Martin Luther writes that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance or as Jeff mentioned this morning, repenting. In other words, the entire Christian life is one of ongoing turning from sin and turning to God in faith. Repentance is not merely something we do once at the beginning of our Christian life, but it is a way of being in the world that is well acquainted with our own poverty of soul and with the rich mercies of God. Verses 3 and 4 are the opposite of this ongoing repentance, which is a distinguishing mark of Christian living. Look with me in verse 3. David writes, For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David is contrasting the blessed life of verses 1 and 2 to the life of unconfessed sin and silent despair. When David keeps silence, his groan is so deep that his very bones seem to be wasting away. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of the unraveling of a man's soul. It is the total collapse of his entire person. Such is the power of unrepentant sin. It is all-consuming. The experience of sin is not only spiritual, but also psychological and even physical. The reality of sin is comprehensive and experienced holistically because we exist as whole persons, both body and soul. Not only is David's inner experience dreadful, but even more striking, he says that the Lord's own hand is against him. Look at verse 4. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up, dried up as by the heat of summer. Your hand was heavy upon me. In the silence of his heart and the anguish of his soul, David finds himself opposed by God. Because God opposes unrighteousness and pride, and unconfessed sin is nothing less than unrighteousness pridefully hidden from God and others. So the pathway to true happiness is not ignoring the, cl the clear claims of the Bible and pretending that we are not morally culpable for our sin. There are people who live their entire lives this way with no regards for God, and it seems like things are going pretty well for them. It is very annoying to see that. They seem carefree and happy, not limited by the moral standard of Scripture and free to do whatever they want. And they're just having a blast. 
Twittering and Facebooking away. But the Lord opposes them in their sin. The Lord opposes them in their unrighteousness. And there's also those of us who, although in covenant relationship with God, we still try to hide our sin under the rug. We think, surely God does not care that much. Surely God will not see. Surely my brothers and sisters will not care about this one. And so we go on sinning and hiding from God and others, and then we show up on Sunday morning pretending that everything is fine. So let me ask you this morning, brother and sister, is, is this you this morning? Are you falling apart under the crushing weight of unconfessed sin behind your masquerading smile? I plead with you, it does not have to be that way. If that is you this morning, I pray you find both consolation for your soul and also boldness unto confession in verse 5. In the silence of his heart and the anguish of his soul, David now turns to God in repentance and confession. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. True repentance in the heart, brothers and sisters, will lead to confession. And true repentance acknowledges that sin is first and foremost against God himself. David acknowledges his sin to God, and he confesses his transgression to the Lord. Sin is always first and foremost against God. Now this is incredible. How does the Lord respond to David's confession? He could have said, too late now, David. You had your chance and you missed it. You chose to hid your sin, so now you are on your own. You had your opportunity to confess, but you chose to hide your sin. But that is not how the Lord responds. Rather, the Lord forgives the iniquity of David's sin. He forgives his iniquity. Brothers and sisters, the severe hand of God that dries up the bones in verse 4 is also the hand of kindness that gently takes us in with our messed up hearts and lovingly and skillfully heals the festering wound of our iniquity. The very hand of severity in verse 4 is the hand of kindness and healing and restoration. Let's not pass over this too quickly. I know that I tend to do that. We are so used to hearing the word forgiveness that we don't often stop to consider the indescribable, indescribable wonder of the good news of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, God does not owe us anything. And yet, he chooses not only to invite us to come to him with our sin and to confess it, but he actually forgives. He actually forgives. He covers our sin and does not count our iniquity against us. He lifts the burden of our guilt and shame and condemnation and carries it away. Not in part, but the whole of it. All of it. 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The pathway of true, lasting happiness begins by turning away from sin. It begins with repentance unto confession. So I plead with you, will you come this morning to this compassionate and forgiving God? Brothers and sisters, He stands ready to forgive. He stands ready to forgive. The progression of this psalm leads us to our second point. David invites us to true, lasting happiness by trusting God. That is, blessedness through faith. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, because God stands ready to forgive, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Verses 6 and 7 invite us to trust God and to find refuge in Him. Rather than hiding our sin, we ought to confess it and look to God to preserve us from the rushing waters of His wrath. You cannot, escape, you cannot not think about the flood when you think about the rushing waters. Those who turn from sin and turn to God in faith will be delivered by the victorious and redeeming power of God. So faith looks away from self to God and is dependent on God to be a savior of sinners. Brothers and sisters, God has provided for His people a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation for our sins to be received by faith, so that those who turn from sin to God through faith in Jesus Christ will no longer drown in the floods of God's displeasure, but be preserved from condemnation. The Apostle Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God stands ready to forgive. Now, I was, I was laying down last night, kind of unconscious, and verse 6 all of a sudden troubled me. And maybe it troubled you this morning. You probably noticed something in verse 6 that could possibly undermine everything that David has said so far. Look with me at verse 6 again. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. You may be thinking, see, there it is. I am not godly. My life is a dirty mess, and there is no way that I can clean up my act and be godly so that God will hear my prayer. Brother and sister, I am I'm there with you. David has argued so far that God is a hiding place and a deliverer of those who turn to him. He has said that God forgives the one who confesses their iniquity. So why does he now say that it is the godly 
who can turn to God in prayer. I thought it was the messed up person that was able to turn to God in prayer. Why the godly now? Well, the word godly here is not a moral appraisal of the character of the one who prays. Rather, the word we translate as godly derives from the same word that we translate all throughout the Psalms as steadfast love. This is one of the points that Jeff made recently in one of his sermons. That godly is the one who is recipient of the steadfast love of the Lord, not by merit, but by virtue of being in covenant with the Lord. Therefore, it is not those who have their act together who are invited to pray in verse 6, but those who are already recipients of God's steadfast love and grace through the covenant that the Lord has established with them. So that we pray not based on our own godliness, but based on the character of the Lord who shows steadfast love to His people. And that is good news for us this morning. So again, brothers and sisters, the Lord is our hiding place. He is our refuge in time of need. He is the one who preserves our lives, and He is our mighty deliverer. Our confidence and assurance of salvation is the grace of God. Our rock and salvation and the anchor of our soul is the Lord Jesus Christ, who became a man and dwelt among us, who lived the perfect life we could never live who died on our behalf and spelled His own blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to cover our iniquity, to save us from the wrath to come, and to seal us with Him in the heavenly places. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has taken His life back up from the grave and has ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, raising us up together with Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will surely come back one day to judge the living and the dead and to save His people forever. God has provided a Redeemer for His people, and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. We boast on nothing else but Jesus Christ and His righteousness. Our confidence is nothing less but the person and finished work of Christ so that we can say with David, blessed is the man, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Brothers and sisters, the pathway to true happiness is utter dependence and trust in God's provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is received through faith. So repenting and trusting. Jeff stole my points earlier this morning. <laughs> Finally, brothers, David invites us to true lasting happiness through wholehearted devotion to God. Wholehearted devotion to God. We actually have already seen this in verse 2, verse 2, where David writes, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The pathway to true happiness is a way of being in the world that is free of deceit or of any false way. In other words, the heart of the blessed person is not split. The heart of the blessed person is not divided. It does not follow deceit or false ways. In verse 11, David refers to it as the upright in heart. It is the person whose heart has one direction and one orientation. It is the person whose heart is bent and inclined Godward. It is the person who walks on the path of righteousness and of singular devotion to the Lord. The contrast to this singularity of heart is found in verses 8 and 9. David writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you shall go. I will counsel you with my eye, my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. David is again instructing us on the pathway he himself has walked. Horses and mules and donkeys need bit and bridle. If not, they will turn away from the, the path you want them to go. There is no singularity of heart in these animals. They will choose another way if they have the chance. But the blessed man is not like the horse or the mule. After having experienced the forgiveness of God, the way of the blessed person is singular and his heart whole towards the Lord. So that wholeness of heart leads to blessedness. This is not to say that having begun by grace, salvation is now depending on the work of men. That is not what David is saying. But it does mean that, the, that God's forgiveness, that God's forgiveness is restorative. Having covered our sinfulness, the grace of God becomes an active agent in the heart so that it inclines the heart towards God. After experiencing forgiveness, we begin to seek God and to know Him as the object of true happiness and ultimate joy. Surely we continue to see dimly as if through a glass. Our sight is not 2020 yet. But as Paul writes, beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed. The ongoing operative power of God's grace causes us to turn away from sin in repentance and to turn to God as the all-satisfying treasure of our soul. So that the pathway to true happiness is that of singularity of heart. It is wholehearted devotion to the God who forgives, which is expressed through ongoing repentance and trust in God. 
So that God himself in Christ is the object of our blessedness and true happiness or true human flourishing. To conclude, having begun in verse 1 and 2 with an introduction to the life of true blessedness, David repeats his invitation in verses 10 and 11. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all upright in heart. Brothers and sisters, the steadfast love of God surrounds His people even in the complex experience of our lives in a fallen world. The great waters of God's wrath will not reach those who find God as their refuge and hiding place. Trust in God is the path to gladness and the path to joy. It is the way to true and lasting happiness. So let us be glad and rejoice and let us shout for joy for our God is a forgiven God. Let's pray with me.